And we're live. <laughs> well, I've hit the record button, but it did, says, please request recording permission from the meeting host, uh, which oh. I have no friggin' idea how to do that. Um, let's see. <laughs> uh, I'm a bit of a Luddite at times. Manage. We actually talked about that as well. Uh, allow well, record. There we go. All right. Oh. All right. All right, it's recording. Okay, cool. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's funny because I used to be uh, a computer salesman back in the day. Really? So I had to know all the intricacies of, you know, how a computer works and explaining to people because you know, this was this was back when computers first started. I guess it was like the night. No, it was in the 2000s. It was in the early 2000s because I remember Windows ME was a problem. But anyways, whenever it was, you stop. It was when it was getting extremely popular. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> just for some reason, though, at some point, I just got tired of trying to keep up with computer stuff. And now I'm basically a Luddite. <laughs> like, like, I can read and figure out whatever I need to. But mm -hmm. if I can avoid it, I, will, I won't learn anything about computers anymore. Yeah, I kind of fall into the same camp where uh, I had I had grown up with two older siblings. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're like eight and ten years older than I am, so mm. I my hand-me-downs were old, so yeah. I didn't I didn't grow up with the modern stuff. And the I would go over to a friend's house, and they'd be like five years ahead of me. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck? What is this thing? <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a younger brother who's eight years younger than me. It's really? an interesting feeling. Um, <clears throat> Because it's like when once there's a certain age gap, there's there's a blurring between brother and like quasi father figure, you know, because they look up to you over a certain gap, yeah. and and the age difference changes things a lot. Yeah, I I have a brother and a sister, so it was like I had four parents. <laughs> it was, it was very I can't get away with anything. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh. yeah. So uh, right. yesterday I was uh, I was talking to uh, Paul about um, we we had gotten into the Pentecostal and uh, Jungian views on on life, and he said it's interesting because if you get a Pentecostal and a Jungian talking. They, these are both people that put a lot of emphasis on story. Right. So a, a Jungian will, will attribute like, hey, these are the story structures that work and we can apply them to our lives. And whereas a Pentecostal would take the Bible and say, hey, we live in this story. And so it's... <clears throat> I'm not uh, familiar with Pentecostal, but I, I know, I wouldn't say a ton, but I know a significant amount about about Jungianism and I can understand the the living in the narrative because because I definitely I perceive life that way you know in mm -hmm. in the human brain has a proclivity to turn everything into a narrative yeah. it's like we were we were discussing when we were typing back and forth on uh, Twitter <clears throat> it has to do with like if you give your brain two facts mm -hmm. two isolated facts it has to work twice as hard. Whereas if you can tie these facts together with a bit of narrative, 
and, and put a, a time flow on it and things of that nature, it becomes a single fact and your brain will, uh, it, it uses less bandwidth is the best way I can think to, to say it. And yeah, so there's a, there's a highway that's, that's created instead of winding through everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's why sometimes I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit worried about overly short sentences. Like remember mm -hmm. that, that one that I was saying was, it was like decontextualized and put ahead of the thing. And so when I hit this sentence, it was like, what am I supposed to do with this sentence? So I had to read the sentence after it and then come back to that sentence to understand how it, how it tied together. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I write overly long sentences. I uh, plugged some of my writing into Grammarly. Uh -huh. and, uh, and it always tells you <laughs> what percentile you fit in. And for sentence length, I was in like the maximum percentile. <laughs> oh dear. And and um, and I even I even put it in as an advanced book, so like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a child's book, and it wouldn't be um, like your typical book. Because I I was getting annoyed because it kept telling me to use a different word, use a different word, and you know, yeah. And even on the most advanced setting, my sentence my sentences were in the ninety fifth percentile, and my vocabulary was in the ninetieth percentile. And I'm like, God damn it, <laughs> no one's ever going to read this crap. <laughs> well, I I can I can understand where you're coming from that because that was my number one problem in school is a, a run-on sentence but mm -hmm. you know and people would say oh here's what you do with a run-on sentence it's just like okay i understand what you're saying there but this but. is all one idea <laughs> so, right this is like how do i <laughs> how do i tell you the whole idea and not have it this long yes i've, I've definitely had to work on that myself because like i'll write a nested sentence that just it, it loops back on itself fractally over and over. And at the end of it, I'm like, perfect, makes perfect sense. And then I realize it's a paragraph long. I'm like, oh, how am I going to do this? It's like, there's a, there's a game. What was it? Um, Alpha Protocol. It was a, it's an RPG, but you're a spy. It was a very strange game, but I loved it because, you know, I, I tend not to go towards the magic stuff. So, uh, there's this guy that you run into and he's just crazy and he'll send you emails and uh, <laughs> one of your responses can be, that is the single longest run on sentence I have ever read because <laughs> it's like this big. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that it's the, the American prose as they call it. Uh, I think it was Hemingway who really, sort of hammered out the idea of short, shortening the sentences and, and cutting out as many unnecessary words and unnecessary whatevers so that it, it becomes like bite-sized. It's just like you're taking all these little chomping bites at the, at the paragraph. But um, I tend to read a lot of old dead people. And so <clears throat> like I was, I was reading uh, Gustav Meyrink, which he wrote, he wrote Golem and, the green, the green mask, just like, I don't know, weird old books. Hmm. Um, and each paragraph was one sentence. Like that was, that was his style that every paragraph was one sentence, but it would have like a, a minimum of two semicolons. It would have, you know, the long dashes. It was, ha it would have, you know, multiple commas. And so it was, it was so weird the way it nested with, and, and you, when you get to the whole paragraph, 
like at the end, it finally makes sense. And I'm like, damn, this guy, is a, it's a struggle to read him. But uh, <clears throat> he paints vividly in his long elliptical way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a full and complete thought. Yeah, exactly. Which that, that's a lot of what happens when you're breaking up sentences because you'll have this full and complete thought, but you have to, you have to break it down into bite-sized chunks because like the longer your sentence is and the more nested and, and like convoluted it becomes, like the more brain power it takes someone to decipher what you're saying. Yeah. And so if you can chop it up and give it to them in chunks, there's something about the period that when the brain hits it, it like uptakes that bit and you move on, mm-hmm. uptakes and move on. And so if you've got a semicolon, you're like, okay, I have to keep this, you know, on keep the plate, yeah. right? It's, it's still on the plate. I can't take it off the plate yet. And then you're like, okay, now there's another semicolon. So I got to keep this over here. And then, and it gets in that nested loop where you got to keep going back and referencing it. Whereas if there's a period, your brain uptakes it and moves on. And, mm. and so I've tried to use more periods. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, like you said, uh, was it Hemingway mm-hmm. that decided to say, Hey, we need to shorten this stuff. But the there's also uh, some some cultural things that ended up shortening thoughts and ideas and sentences and things like that and it's a lot of it has to do with with newspaper space and oh, um, and and the printing press they wanted less words so there's just like if you can get everything compacted to these things Mm-hmm. you know, we can print more of your books for cheaper and that kind of stuff. And so it became kind of a monetary thing, but now with, with digital stuff, I think. There's no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so what inspired you to write your short story? <clears throat> um, well, I, I don't want to go too far into it because I'm, I'm, I, uh, I, I ended personal. up writing ended up writing writing it under a pen name for a reason mm-hmm. but um i'll just say it's it it was um it was a, b- a bit of a joker thing you know one bad day so uh there's a whole bunch of frustration that built up and i ended up writing it in like 11 hours yeah so that's that's what's really cool about when the muse strikes when, when something induces writing, it flows out at, at such a, a surprising pace. Like, like you wrote, you know, 6,000 words in, in 11 hours. Um, when I wrote my first book, it was 60,000 words and I wrote it in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, you know, I, I wake up in the morning and uh, when I was still in the, the post-sleep sort of hypnopompic stage where it's like in between dreaming and waking, mm-hmm. like I, I, would, I would analyze what I dreamed about and then, and then break it down into a narrative. And then my eyes would pop open. I'd jump on the computer and just start typing mm-hmm. as fast as I could. And um, I did that literally every day for three weeks. And that it was like, I got to, the whole book is about formulating several questions. Like it's, it's asking a question about 
um, identity, because there's an issue with identity. Um, th there's an issue with um, belief, like understanding belief and the nature of it. Uh, there's issues with um, <clears throat> generalized misunderstanding of, of contemporary, like, like I, in like Pajot terms, it'd be like the inversion of the hierarchy, mm -hmm. like how people are like focusing on the wrong parts. And, and like when you did your first talk with um, P, uh, Paul and you started your camera inverted, yeah, like I instantly knew what, what you were doing, whether, whether it was conscious or not, but then later on it, it, it panned out that it was conscious, especially when you're talking about the, the underground goblins mm. what not so. So it's like all those things came together and I'm forming, formulating all these questions about it. And then <clears throat> I wrote 18 chapters and then I just stopped. I just stopped dead. And I, cause I had no idea. Cause it was like, here's this big question, but I have no idea what the answer is. And um, I didn't write for six months. And then one day something snapped and I wrote the last two chapters. And I wouldn't say that they're answers per se, but they're vague notions of perhaps what an answer could be. And it's couched in a way that I think people can insert their own answer. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, because <clears throat> I think- Have you uh, watched uh, Columbo? Um, <clears throat> He's that old man with really big eyebrows. Uh, yeah, and the glass eye. I had no idea about a glass eye, but I remember <laughs> my grandma being into Columbo, and if I ever watched it, it was it was by um, being near her <laughs> as a kid. It, it's a strange it's a strange mystery thing because they start out by you knowing exactly who who killed them, mm -hmm. and the entire time. Columbo is the one bumbling around, asking strange questions, and the person helping him the most is the murderer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the nature of a liar. Is <clears throat> there's this really great Philip K. Dick quote? I actually underlined it. I'm reading its exegesis of all things. It's like a thousand pages of rambling insanity, <laughs> but. Um, he, he says something like when a lie is created, when a lie is told uh, a little bit of false reality is created. Mm. And um, when the truth comes out, you know, reality is reverted back to actuality. And, and it has to do with like the nature and way lies spread. You know, mm. you, if you tell one lie, well, reality is not going to comport with this lie. So you have to tell a supporting lie. And then that lie is going to need a couple of lies supporting it. And it becomes like a, a, a web that spreads out from that central lie. And it grows. And, and lying is so stressful because reality is reality. Everyone sees the same reality. But you've created a false reality hmm. that you have to commit your brain to maintaining this web and, and, and remembering all these individual little connections and you tell one truth and the web evaporates and you're free from it. And that's sort of like if the, the liar is helping him most because the, or the, the murderer, because he has to maintain this web of lies, mm -hmm. which is way too much stress, you know, on your, your, um, 
I want to use a computer term, your RAM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and that's why I think the liar probably helped, or the, the murderer helps Columbo the most mm. because yeah. there's an inevitable, inevitable failure to maintain the web. That's the, the very first episode is about a pair of writers. Really? Yeah. So, and the, the, fr the friend is the front man who goes on talk shows and does all this, all the publicity and the guy that ends up getting killed is the one that writes everything. Really? Yeah. So the skillful one. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So what do you want to talk about? Hmm. Uh, there's a there's a bit of that uh, of that short story um, that you that you did mm -hmm. um, where it was it, 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 the the reaction that he had to everybody reacting to his words right was like i didn't I don't, I don't know i i think looking back at it now there was a lot more shock in it than i had read into it because he was just kind of standing there like what is going on right <laughs> so. like man when i wrote that short story <clears throat> it's really weird that short story was spawned by a dream i had probably over a year ago and I actually, I, I toned it down a lot because um, there's no, there's no nice way to put it. It was, there was, there was a racial issue within the context of using the words. And, and I thought I should just take that out. <clears throat> but, but so I, I had written the idea down in a blurb and I put it in my phone. And when they were asking for short story ideas, I know I had been thinking about making this into a short story forever. Um, so I just, I ran with it. And at the same time, like I'd been having dreams about the nature of language and the nature of communication. And when I talked to Paul the first time, and that before we had talked, I'd sent him that, like that essay that I'd written. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and like the whole essay is on communication because that's something I'm sort of like I'm sort of caught up with right now is the the nature of communication and the ability to to fully communicate as an isolated subjective being within a brain within your mind like you cannot touch somebody else's mind directly you have to speak into the world and vibrate the air so that it tickles their ears so that they can receive it. And then once they receive it, it, it's exactly like we were having issues with your short story where I wasn't understand, understanding it because of, of syntax that didn't work for my brain. Mm -hmm. And then, and then choice of words that mean something to you that means something else to me. And so there wasn't a conveyance of one subjective mind to another. Okay. <clears throat> and so I, I, I think about this stuff a lot and Paul did a a talk with that Stindek guy Stindok or something like that oh it, the, it, the marriage uh right the marriage talk right. now that 
that talk, the marriage, the marriage part was interesting in the beginning, but what really struck me was when they were talking about the Michelangelo painting, I think it was Michelangelo. I, I, I get it. My, Oh, where, where they can't touch or it yeah. would lose the meaning. They can't touch or it would lose the meaning. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and then Guy <clears throat> says that that exists in the heart of every man. Hmm. And, and it just, it struck me because like, that's what I've been writing about a lot right now is the fact that we, we can never quite touch. And, and, uh, <clears throat> was that the inspiration behind your, tw your tweet? The one I responded to with the Michelangelo painting? What did I tweet? You tweeted all of these great thinkers saying, I know nothing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, that was just me being me. I don't know. I, <laughs> I saw a bunch of, of quotes that, that correlated and, and I don't know, they were in the back of my head and I had typed them into uh, discord because I don't remember who I was talking about. It's been weeks ago at this point, but it was basically about your inability to, to understand stuff. You know, it has to do with like, this concept that I have called uh, knowledge scaffolding. Mm. Like the way I, I consider it is like, it correlates to the idea of like, like a, the Dunning-Kruger idiot mountain. You know what that is? I've heard the term, but not the idiot mountain part. <laughs> okay. And it, the, there, there's the Dunning-Kruger curve of understanding. And it's like- Oh, okay, okay. Like, let's say you first discover a subject. Let's say you will just go with postmodernism because everyone thinks they understand it because, you know, Jordan Peterson said five sentences about it. And so they're like, ah, I fully understand postmodernism. And that's, that's idiot mountain mm -hmm. where you have very few tools to work with and you think you've built a castle. And then <clears throat> when you get kicked off of idiot mountain, there's this sharp decline down into the bottom of where you really the more you know, you realize you don't know much more than that. Yeah. And that's sort of like the, the scaffolding, the, the knowledge scaffolding where, and that's what I was doing with the, the Socrates quote. It was Socrates, Voltaire, and um, Einstein. Einstein. <coughs> where they're talking about, they, they all, irrespective of each other, independently wrote virtually the same quote. Because Socrates obviously did it in uh, ancient Greek or Latin, I forget. Voltaire did it in French, and then Einstein did it in English, and and they're all separated by just so much time, you know, obviously like thousands of years, <clears throat> well hundreds, I guess, in the case of Voltaire and and Einstein. But the the fact remains, there's all these ideas, and I'm sure if you if you combed enough stuff these ideas would come out from other people's writing because it's basically the Dunning-Kruger falling from idiot mountain where mm. you realize that you don't know anything. And in my, my first book is I wrote about it because it's, it, it was had to do with the structure of belief because like there's the, the knowledge scaffolding, right? You don't know what you don't know. Mm. Right. So you start at the bottom. This is this is idiot mountain where you don't know that you don't know all the stuff. But as you learn something, you climb to the next tier of the scaffolding and then you become aware of the structure. And as you climb up the structure, you become aware of that the structure keeps growing. Mm -hmm. And by the time, you know, <clears throat> you climb to the top of your specialization, it's like you're gazing at the infinite. You're like, I know 
all of this stuff that I can't possibly know. And you're limited necessarily by your 80 to 90 year lifespan. You know, there's no way you can read every book mm-hmm. in the apostolic library at the Vatican. You're just never going to do it ever. Mm-hmm. And, and <clears throat> so because you're in this position of knowing all the stuff that you can't possibly know firsthand, this is where for me, science becomes faith-based because you have to, you have to, what would I say? Take what other people say on faith. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like <clears throat> to understand how uh, nuclear, nuclear, whatever fractionates and blows up. Like you don't know that firsthand. You just know that somebody said that and you have to, to take it on faith that you shouldn't bombard a, a particle in this way. <clears throat> now that's a, a very simple and straightforward one because we've had actual, you know, demonstrations of how this doesn't work or how this does work. I mean, but then once you get like over here, like in the more spacey stuff where you have, you know, people claiming infinity, multiple dimensions, you have string theory, which that stuff is just pure faith-based nonsense. Like you can't even wrap your head around it. Like, you know, they're just, they're pulling this stuff out of their butt. And, and there's so many other things that, and when you really get into the, like quantum physics aspect of science, like you're standing, you're standing in the the shadow of the infinite and you know that you're nothing because they, a lot of the, the really intense um, quantum physicists, they'll literally say, once you get to a certain part, you start going insane because everything seems like magic. (laughs) And, and, and our science is, when you dig far enough down, they have no idea what's going on. And it has to do with like, <clears throat> I think it was Edward Fazer. Um, I, I listened to him interviewed by Ben Shapiro, which was uh, funny. It was like his Sunday special before it started to like suck. Like in the, in the beginning, it was philosophical stuff. Like he, his first person was Jordan Peterson. And, and then there were some other people in that vein. And this was yeah, when he had I, Ed, I've Ed noticed Fazer I have, I've stopped watching those. So, yeah, now yeah. they're all like political. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like, um, anyways, Ben Shapiro. But Ed, Edward Fazer was talking about um, the five proofs of God. And he was talking about brute facts. It, brute facts are the faith-based facts. Like when you get down far enough, it, like here's a perfect example, like emergence, where mm-hmm. they say, where, do, where does consciousness come from? Emergence. Well, if you dig under emergence, emergence is nothing but an analog for magic. Like there's nothing there. Like they, they can't, they, they don't know. And then mm-hmm. some have tried panpsychism to basically push the emergence of consciousness so far down that they can pretend like it's not magic. You know, it's, it's just, it's nonsensical. So there's a guy that um, I think it was like a band Ted talk or something where he's, mm-hmm. he, he lays out all of these things that the scientific community is completely rejecting because it destroys their Structures. baseline. Mm-hmm. So like the, the, the speed of light is a constant, like mm, actually there was a time at which this, this, this place that measures the speed of light, it dipped for a few months. 
what? <laughs> that, see, I don't even know about that one. Yeah, yeah. There's a, like, <clears throat> one of the things that I think really highlights the issue with uh, the sciences, especially more soft sciences, is there's, you know, the replication crisis where they have all these these clever ideas that they came up with and they wrote them in papers and now everyone has used these papers as scaffolding to write more papers and now people have decided to go back and test if any of these things actually work so people are standing on top of non-functional ir irreplicable um bullshit for lack of a better term and um and another one is like if you listen to that <laughs> there's this great talk between Brett Weinstein and Eric Weinstein uh -oh. and Eric is your classical jerk brother which I, <laughs> I know because oh, no. I, I'm I'm the jerk brother and he's like and he's like Brett stop being a little bastard and, and you know obviously he doesn't use that term but he's like pushing him around until Brett finally comes out of a shell because Brett's a little bit of a uh, well, I can't think of a nice word for it but anyways <laughs> <clears throat> but it, it talks about his clashing with Richard Dawkins in terms of, I, I think it was telomeres and the nature of how, how mice um, evolved to have longer telomeres, which was throwing off all this research. And, and so he has these ideas and he, you know, like the way you. So they, they were suddenly living longer. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, they're the, the mice, the mice's telomeres grew too long, and so people are basing studies off of this stuff, which is breaking the studies. Like if you're doing if you're doing medical studies for let's say medicine, because mm -hmm. I, I forget the exact issue, but there it had something to do with them trying to alter the, an aging process or something like that, and it was based off telomeres of mice that had evolved to have longer telomeres because they were, I don't know, I guess inbreeding them or something. But it's just the idea that, you know, Richard Dawkins, you know, he, he represents the establishment. And then you have Brett Weinstein saying, you know, this foundation that you're standing on is, is improper. And he's like, wait, that's my foundation. Get away, get away, you know. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with, uh, you know, the nature in which, um, what is that called? Darwinism, like some of its, like the ways in which it doesn't work. Because you know everyone wants to focus on where it does work, and then the places where it doesn't work, everyone kind of just brushes it under the rug. Yeah. So. Anyways. So hey, that's 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 a, a talk that I hadn't heard yet because I was just like, man, why did why do I never see these two together? So oh, I, it was hilarious. It's oh, the best man. talk. <laughs> I remember I was. Uh, I was actually talking in the Discord about how much I was enjoying it. And I think it was Sam Adams was like, he was not liking uh, the way Eric was treating his brother. But as a big brother, I was like, yeah, get him. <laughs> get him. <laughs> because I don't know, it's that, <clears throat> that tough love thing that comes from older brothers. I yeah. think he did a good job of extricating Brett from his too nice demeanor. Mm. so it was a good talk yeah. that's that's something that i've noticed with uh verveke have you seen his oh stuff? god verveke i i'm really far through his um <clears throat> series mm. i think i'm only like <clears throat> 15 <clears throat> behind now 
but his his pre-apologetic like couching everything and like no i don't want to hurt your feelings and i'm not trying to say this is what i mean i'm trying to say this and i don't want you to think this it's like oh my god can you just spit it out can you just isn't he canadian (laughs) he's canadian oh dear he's canadian it's uh as it's in my nature to be very very blunt and straightforward so he frustrates the hell out of me And, uh, I, 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 on, on one hand, I'm, I'm thankful that he's, that he's got a soft touch on this stuff. On the other yeah. hand, I'm just like, just get the question out, man. <laughs> yeah. Could you just spit it out? And, and like exactly the soft touch, I can underst- understand that he's trying to be respectful, especially considering, you know, most contemporary scientific types are total jackasses about, you know, when it comes to dealing with the nature of belief and religion and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I really respect the way he's uh, very nice to marry uh, Cohen. When, or, I forget her name. Cohen? Anyways, uh, the, the old lady with the turban on the, all the time. Oh, yes, yes. They, uh, when they talk, you know, you know he, he's very nice and very respectful. And like, but I could tell that she's more tenacious and she's kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to she's, it. She's going she's gonna to poke him. But the, man, the, I understand, I understand what he's getting at with wanting to do this project of a religion that's not a religion. It's just like, okay, that's great and all, but uh, eventually you're you're going to get to the point where you're going to apply this to a person and then you're going to get into this weird ideology stuff. Yeah. And, and. And even if they avoid that, they have the problem of being too academic. I was listening to his talk between him and Jordan, the other Jordan, uh, the Green guy Hall. That, I think it. Uh, the guy that it's either Jordan the, Hall or Green Hall. I know who you're talking about the Blue Church. Yes, Blue yeah. Church, Red Religion. Yeah, he. When they were talking, I was like, guys. Unless they've watched a hundred hours of everything you've talked about, nobody knows what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> but thankfully, I've, won- I've probably listened to a hundred hours of those guys. Like, I was listening to Jordan Greenhall back when his YouTube channel had five videos on it. So, <laughs> he's, uh, I-, I came across the-, the Blue Church, the Red Religion, a long time ago, and it's... It's a great metaphoric way to understand like sort of the, the inversion and the collapse of the, the things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Cause the blue church basically represents sort of a hierarchy and, and the red religion is representing the things that don't fit into the hierarchy. And like, it's kind of like, Ideally, you want the balance. And I think that's kind of like what the cross represents is like there's the, there's the up and down and that's the hierarchy. And then there's the, the crossing point and that's equality, right? And as long as it's crossed right, you have balance. And then what happens is if, if um, like I've, I visualize it as a totem, a totem pole. You know, like you can be on the top of the hierarchy or you can be on the bottom, but at least you're on the hierarchy because the other option is to be 
a member of the wood that was cut away from the hierarchy that lays at the bottom, the shavings at the bottom, right? And the shavings are sort of like what would be in in like Hindu caste system, the untouchables. Hmm. Right? Well, there's and, there's a there's a, a a problem with the analogy though, because I think I heard that that with the totem pole, the most important one is actually on the bottom. Well, but I you know, but I know what you're saying is is that the, it. It's still, whether it's on the top or the bottom, mm -hmm. it's still a representative of the order of importance or not yeah. even importance, the order of, I would say it has to do with like Prado. Um, the order of growth? Not growth, competence, I think would oh, probably yeah, be the best go. word. Because yeah. you, want, you want somebody competent. The more competent somebody is, the more influence they have over the collective, so to speak. Yeah. But the, the um, shavings analogy still still works with that is you've got well, the, the outside like, or the untouchables. Yeah, you, you have the the untouchables at the bottom. And if you keep carving away at the at the totem pole, it gets thinner and thinner and the pile of shaving grows and grows and grows until you have a thin dowel rod that could be easily snapped and you have a horde of angry shavings that are gonna tear it down. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. And it's all about maintaining that balance. As long as, as, as things are balanced, you're, you know, you've got the cross going, things work out. But if your, your hierarchy gets too steep, too thin, it'll break. Mm. And then, you know, the other option is if you want everyone to be equal, then you, what are you going to do? Like lay the totem on its side? I guess that's where the analogy breaks down is where you're trying to, to get equality out of it. But it's just well, that... Well, it, it's what that's when you bring up the difference between equality and equity. Yeah, the equality of outcome versus the equality of opportunity. See, equity would equity would would turn the totem pole pull over. Mm -hmm. so it's like here now everything's equal. It's like well, n no, but did they deserve that? <laughs> this is this is the way. This is the way I analogized it to my son when we were talking about, because <clears throat> I was explaining to him, I was like, it's actually the way in which you're limited, which gives you the ability to create. So mm -hmm. like, <clears throat> take a cup, for instance, what makes a cup useful, the way it limits whatever you're drinking. Yeah, you know, holds you, the water. Right, exactly. If you If you were to pour it just onto a table and like lap it up like a dog that would be inefficient yeah. and and so like you know you've got to think about the hierarchy sort of like a ladder mm. you know it's the necessary limitations of the ladder because if you if you remove the limitations of the ladder and make every part equal then it's just a bunch of sticks laying on the ground <laughs> yeah. yeah if you ever good. want to climb anywhere you know certain sticks have to function a certain way. There's the longer sticks. They have to be within the ladder. This rung is above this rung and this rung is above this rung. And that's just the way it goes. There's a hierarchy. And if you ever want to climb to get anywhere, you have to, you know, you have to respect the ladder. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, a lot of metaphoric analogy and in the nature of all analogies is they break down if you push them too far, but there's just the general idea that you, you have to have a, certain amount of limitation to function properly mm -hmm. and um have you ever read the uh what the hell's the name of that book the language of creation by matthew peugeot 
Oh, oh, yeah. I I was uh, I was watching that video, and that his brother confuses me more than he does, which is really? strange. Because I because like I for a little while I worked in uh, in in doing math related stuff, but and and I felt comfortable in that because math is very rigid. It's just like okay, this is this. Yeah. Like, but when he started to applying math to symbology, I was just like, you're losing me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually I have not read really like him. It's like for, for the way my brain works, the book was fantastic. It's probably one of the books that I read faster than any other book mm -hmm. in my life. And he also uses a lot of pictures, which, you know, I, I think in pictures and not in words. So it, it really quickly translated into to logical stuff for me. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> one of the things he talks about is, is, you know, you create a category and then things array into the category. And as they abstract further away from the category, you know, they're, they're, the way you can think about them widens. So it creates the pyramid. There's the absolute idea on the top and then it splits off and then it splits off and then it splits off. Hmm. <clears throat> and so this is, this is the, the hierarchical categorization of, I think he calls it like wisdom or ideas or the mind or something like that. And inevitably, as you try to fit everything into this categorization, once you get to the end, there is the stumbling stone. There's the tail. There's the thing that doesn't fit, right? The margin that, that doesn't fit into the, into the categorical whole. Mm -hmm. And, and what I really liked about that idea is you can see how people forcibly trying to fit things in the categorization are creating a lot of the modern problems. So like, you know, the LGD, LGBTQQIAP acronym keeps growing, you know, endlessly. It keeps growing because everyone's trying to create a category for every little subset. You know, now that there's, there's well, now they're one fighting guy. each other and trying to get rid of others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's like that guy who's like trans alien or something, you know, oh, I say guy, whatever he is, whatever he is. And, and so now he needs his own little subcategory because he's one weirdo who tattooed his body and cut off all his genitalia and pierced his eyes or, or, or tattooed his eyes. It's just weird. It's like, we don't need a category for this. Can we just have a category called other, you know? Yeah. And, and when you try to plug everything so rigidly into the, the category, it weakens the, the collective category. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, you were talking about the, uh, uh, the, the stumbling stone and mm -hmm. that that's, that's a, that's a biblical reference. Um, well, it's a biblical book. Yeah, like, I, know, I recognize that. The, yeah, the, the the stumbling stone. This 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 stumbling stone has become the cornerstone. And the, yes, exactly. You yeah. nailed it right there. The stumbling stone has become like the cornerstone or or the keystone in the arch or something like mm -hmm. that. And and everybody's obsessed with the stumbling stone. And it's like, yeah. but it's the stumbling stone. And one of the one of the correlations he makes in that book is uh the stumbling stone he also calls it the tail which he 
uh, equivalates to Satan, like the thing that doesn't fit. Um, hmm. in, and I don't know if you've seen Jonathan Pajot's video on, on the significance of 666, but 666, it basically represents extreme authoritarian rigidity. Mm. which which goes along with the idea of, of Satan being the stumbling stone, which is now the keystone. So because, it's, it's totalitarianism. Yes, totalitarianism obsessed with making everything fit into this, this weird rigid order, yeah. which is kind you of paradoxical. You can see that in Germany and in Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back, you know, to the LGBTQIA PPP thing. You know, they're, they're trying to fit everything into a category and it's causing, it's causing issues. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's like, like as a father, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's, there's the boys in a girl's restroom and I have a little girl. Well, I have a couple of little girls, but the, the other ones are bigger. It, you don't want to think about, you know, some person who identified as female yesterday going in there it's just creepy you know yeah. it's like can we have a certain amount of respect for for categories because it has to do with the cup right the cup is limitation the limitation yeah. is what gives the, the value mm -hmm. and when they try to fit everything into the category they've destroyed limitation and they've destroyed the value of the category itself mm -hmm. so now you can be sounds terrible trans fluid or uh, gender fluid where you could be male or female whenever you want because you're not committed because the category is a big wide open sloppy mess now and if you can what if you you identify as a woman enter the bathroom and then once inside you identify as a man you know it, it's, it's yeah. just it just gets into like this crazy area where you can't make sense of any of it mm -hmm. and identity and the nature of the the identity crisis is one of the things that i work through in my first book because there's a there's a character that uh their pronouns are constantly changing like within one sentence it'll be mm -hmm. like he did this for her you know but it's like the same person because they're they're this slippery mess where they can't identify what they are and the nature of their inability to identify one way or another is, is the root of their problem. And it causes them to do some bad things. Hmm. So. Yeah, I, I, I have a, I have a friend, his, his mother is a big Stephen King fan and um, his sister wanted to write a book and uh, so his mother was reading it and she said um, it was doing okay and then suddenly the character changed gender and I didn't understand what was going on and looking back at it now I'm like oh I well at first I thought, oh, well, they didn't catch that. It was, it was a bad, it was a grammatical error. And now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, wait a second. Did she do that on purpose? Was that part of the story? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Cause, cause I don't know. She lives, she lives in Oregon now. So, oh yeah. So it, it was, that was very, it was very odd. Uh, 
just watching her mom react to that, she's like, I didn't, I just had to put it down. I couldn't make any sense of it. So, <laughs> Well, she'd probably hate, hate my book then <laughs> because it's, it's purposely designed to create confusion. Yeah. Like everyone who's, who's read it when they get to that chapter, they're, they go through like a confusion and they're like, Oh, did you mean to do that? Oh, you did mean to do this. Oh, and then if it's some, there's some people who they understand it and they flow with it. And there are some people who are, there, they're just like mad. They're like, could you just choose one or the other? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. it, it represents something, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, the frustration is naturally, you know, an important part of it for mm-hmm. the people who are, who are frustrated by it. But, I could say by the conclusion of the book, it, the, the identity extricates, uh, uh, yeah, from the other one. So it's, it works out in the end. Yeah. Man, the, when, when Paul and I, uh, were talking about story, we had gotten into the, the idea of, uh, writing yourself in mm-hmm. and I I think it's is it Dorothy Summers or Catherine I don't I, something summer, su, uh, Summers uh, so a mystery writer she had written her she had fallen in love with one of the characters and so she had written herself into the story and that sounds creepy <laughs> it, it, it does but it, but because of the way that she did it 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 worked because it wasn't one of those like fan fiction power fantasies where they automatically fall in love. Yeah. She still um, had to work for it. It, it, there was a, there was a, there was a story and there was a lot of tension and they only get together like in the second to last book or something. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, so all of this makes sense, even though it's weird. Well, <sighs> one of the things that I've noticed in writing is inevitably you write yourself in. Yeah. Like there's no escaping it. Yeah. Even Um, if it's tidbits inside of other characters. Right. Exactly. Precisely. Like I have this, this character in my book named Jack and that's definitely a strong aspect of me Mm. because uh, he's sort of like, the no-nonsense quasi-father figure of a small group of, of operatives, I guess you'd call it. And uh, he lets, like one of the things that, that drives my wife nuts is like there'll be times when my boys are fighting and I let them fight because it's necessary to work out certain um, aspects of, you know, understanding power disparity and the the nature of limitations of how you can act like if someone's been overly mothered they don't know how to interact especially among boys Hmm. and um and so there are there are points where there's a little bit of infighting in the group and jack allows that to happen and you know that's definitely an aspect of me and uh and then like even the the character that switches between he and she like when whenever the he is manifesting it's a little too violent and a little bit too masculine mm. and and that is are is definitely has aspects of me in it because 
like I can have a bad temper and I can, um, I haven't beat anybody, but I can get close to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, and then, so like, but it's funny, like there's this one character named Kyle Hmm. and like, there's a thread of me from when I was much younger, but there's also strong threads of uh, my younger brother, uh, my oldest son, friends and acquaintances, and, and everything comes together in this amalgam to to make this manifestation of Kyle is like the the lack of proper manhood, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. and his sort of his search to find it, not man, masculinity, I guess would be a better yeah. way to, to put it. And like I have this this other thing that I wrote, which was spawned by watching a video between Jonathan Pajot and some rando online who I don't know who he was, but <clears throat> he started talking about how there's the frame, how, how females create the frame mm-hmm. and, and guys represent the logos that fills the frame, which in my mind, you know, being a pervert, I instantly took it down to the most carnal level of the frame and the insertion. And Was that then, the, the femininity of the spirit, that, that video? possibly it's they talk about Moana in the video and it's like 15 minutes long it's it's a very old video it's like two or three years old has he been doing this for three years maybe two years yeah I don't think it's that video but it's it's this is probably the first time I ever heard it articulated by him Hmm. the the nature between the feminine the feminine and the masculine and then Mary Koken did did a video where she talked about the nature of the feminine and what it represented. And that got my, my brain working uh, really hard. It's so that I started correlating it back to this thing that I wrote. And like, I have this theory that, you know, because, because women create the frame that men are sort of drawn to naturally um, because like the whole there's there's not female incels you know what i mean there's not a huge cadre of women who are rotting away in front of video games it's mostly young guys because well well, no because you've got you've got there's a the other aspect of that is what you would eventually call the crazy cat lady (laughs) that's true there's there's the crazy cat lady but i think if you were to compare the two categories in mm. in the danger between the two it's like you know crazy cat ladies happen and a lot mm. of them are, are widows yeah. and you know some of them aren't some of them were married to their job and then you know never had children mm-hmm. but you know like you know who elliot roger is i've heard the name <clears throat> the patron saint elliot roger is loved by incels and i and they use this term literally they, they call him okay. the patron saint or his lord or something like that. Just, just weird stuff. And he's a guy who went on a shooting spree like three years ago and killed a bunch of women. Oh my gosh. And, and so he's idealized as the, 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 the true incel. And um, there was oh another gosh. guy who has a name that I can't recall. Uh, it's a foreign name that I can't pronounce. It's the main reason I can't recall it. But he, th- this guy drove down the street in, um, I think, Toronto, with a van targeting women 
and just running oh, women over. Yeah, I remember that one. <clears throat> and so he's he's now a patron saint of the incels. Jeez. And there there's a few other and these, it's are, so, these are not people to admire. <laughs> no, not at all. And have you ever seen one of those memes where there's it's a picture of an attractive girl, but it'll say like two out of ten, and they'll be like, you know face is fat her hips are out of whack or whatever and it's like an attractive woman but they're just sitting there tearing her down mm-hmm. and and trying to to make her ugly Weird. and and it's another one of these these incel mechanics of trying to destroy the feminine so that they can justify the fact that they don't have it <clears throat> like that that mm. the destruction of the thing you can't have is a very I think it's called sour grapes, you know, where it's like, if, if you can't have it, it must be bad. Yeah. And this is so prevalent in society right now. And I think one of the things that it has to do with is <clears throat> like when they're trying to, to understand the source of violence mm. and they, they correlated violence to being poor. Right. But then you have places where, the whole place is poor and there's not a lot of violence, but yet Chicago is off the charts in terms of violence. And it's because of the, the relation between the haves and the have nots. <clears throat> if you're a, if you're a have not, you're a poor person and you could look across the street at the, the golden um, penthouse of the rich people, you know how poor you are. Yeah. There's and, a building of resentment. Right. And you can't, you know that you can't achieve that, especially, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you, you could chalk it up to whatever, but you can't achieve it. It, 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 not the pathway of, of resource acquisition, you feel inept. And this is like one of the issues that I think plagues incels is when they come up against a hierarchy that's too steep, they give up preemptively. You know what I mean? And, and when you give up preemptively, this is when you fall into that pool of, of resentment and hatred that, that ultimately wants to destroy the thing they can't have. So now you have Chicago and you have the, the, the tower across the street, the, the unachievable hierarchy. Now this, this, the book that studied this, that came out with this idea was back, I think in like 1985, right? Mm. Well, since then we've invented um, social media. Now the yeah. whole world is Chicago because if you mm-hmm. go online, you instantly see all the haves and you're instantly where aware of your have not nature. All, all the smiling faces. Here's the restaurant I went to. Here's my food yes. in the picture. Look how many likes I got. Yeah. Uh, look how many retweets or whatever, whatever your, your found uh, thing is that you go on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you're, and, and then you can get into a algorithmically like controlled bubble where like you might be a, a school shooter type, but if you're just one guy over here, nothing may ever manifest of it, mm-hmm. uh, manifest from it. But if you go into an online group where there's a thousand guys egging you on because they all hate the same thing. Oh yeah. You know, now you're in a, in a group that's going to feed into your psychosis and, or whatever you want to call it, and it's going to manifest some very evil things. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 draws, it draws out the shadow of, the, of your resentment. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. And, 
and so we have like like i said the the whole world is chicago now everyone is right up against each other in 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 a, like a subjective way just like rubbing up against them and you know exactly what you don't have and, and you you grow resentful you pull away into a small little group and you breed you know evil ideas until something manifests i mean they patron saint elliot roger I mean, it's it's a it's a very gross thing that's going on yeah. and uh <clears throat> So yeah, I'm not a I'm not a super big fan of social media, even though I use Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've actually uh, within the last couple of days, I was just like, you know what, I'm on here too much. So on my quick links, I just I removed it, and so mm -hmm. I just I just keep my uh, my email up to notify me if I ever get any messages. Yeah. So. <laughs> that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of unnecessary um on on one side there's a lot of unnecessary frustration and a lot of unnecessary boastfulness because oh yeah you know it's just like oh well, haha my enemy is screwing up here it's just like well i i shouldn't i shouldn't be feeling like that that's that's yeah. not that's not good for me <laughs> <clears throat> twitter I think more than any of the social media sites, like each each social media site individually feeds into like some darker, what would you call it, instinct of, of humans. Mm. So like Twitter, Twitter is tribalization and mm. war. Now there are a couple of people who post dumb dog videos and whatnot, but for the most part, it, it's, splitting off into tribes and fighting over stuff mm -hmm. so you know the the in 120 characters i think it's up to to 244 now 244 really okay. yeah because you could you could write a pretty significant little blurb now mm -hmm. but <clears throat> the the one that i'm particularly aware of is the left right war you know mm -hmm. you know it's the as someone who considers himself a centrist I, I tend to <laughs> watch both sides and, and see how the war is going, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. Yeah, if but, you want a good gauge, you just tune into Tim Pool. He'll tell you what's actually going on. Yeah, it's, yeah. I like Tim Pool, but there there's this this thing that always manifests within um, a creator and their following. Mm. And it has to do with like this sort of the thread of populism. Mm. Like, okay, if you eat a lot of sugar, you'll populate your stomach with um, a flora that wants and craves sugar. And it'll feed back into your brain these chemicals that trigger a desire for sugar. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the creator is the brain and their, their constituency, I don't know what you want to call it, followers group. Subscribers subscribers they're the bacteria mm -hmm. and <clears throat> the more thumbs up you get the more replies and retweets you get the human brain cannot disconnect this mm. like there's there's no escape from it and i've watched tim pool over several years become more and more and more a disgruntled lefty you know mm -hmm. what i mean and <clears throat> dave rubin yeah, Dave Rubin. Uh, once again, like Dave Rubin, if if his followers 
had pushed him in another way, he probably would have gone that way. Like, and it, it's exactly the same with like, you know, take Trump and Bernie Sanders and all these other people. Like, people have this illusion that the leader is leading a flock, but the flock shapes the leader. Mm. Like there's just no escaping it. And then there's a duality to it. But I mean, I really came to understand this during 2016 because um, I subscribed to Trump and Hillary and whoever else was running. I can't remember at the time. And, and if you give them like five bucks, they'll just send you all kinds of nonsense all the time. And you see that they're sending out questionnaires mm-hmm. and However, the feedback from the group returns, their message starts molding and shaping. And so it's, it's the, everybody does it to a certain degree where you're trying to manifest the desires of your constituency. Yeah, but it, it also depends upon your personality type because if, if you're somebody that is, so if you're somebody that is very, um swayable mm-hmm. you'll 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 tend to go with the loudest voices right um whereas if you're if you're more stable you'll you'll go with the with the not the loudest but the most popular voices like it, the the biggest the biggest group but if you're if you're used to taking advice you'll you'll usually be able to figure out your own way of doing what other people are asking you to do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the way that I've, I've, I've looked at this stuff politically because you look at a lot of uh, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> when, when you look at her platform, she's all over the place. Yeah. And, and every, everything is just like, that ant- what it, the answer she just gave was had to have been something from a from a what is it called a focus group focus group yeah, yeah. it's just like this is this is not you're not being real if you're real people will vote for you because they <clears> want to vote degree. for somebody real see i think i think what it comes down to is there's a certain amount of actually being able able to sell it mm-hmm. like elizabeth warren like she's an example. Remember we were talking about the web of lies and, and trying to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Like she's an example of someone who doesn't have a lot of Ram for maintaining her web because she, she contradicts herself incessantly. Like uh, she got kicked out of uh, her tenured professor position because she got pregnant. But then it comes out later that they offered for her to stay and but so that so that she apologizes for the correction and then says it again later because she can't maintain the the bullshit and you know obviously there's the nonsense with her like one 1028th indian it's like who cares <laughs> like, who really cares yeah. you, you got high cheekbones nobody cares but if she hadn't have used it i don't think it would have drawn so much attention Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she used it as a manipulative sort of like, well, there, there's the whole intersectionality thing on the left mm-hmm. right now where people are judged by um, things that have no impact on their character. Yeah. Like they've literally inverted um, the, I have a dream 
where we could be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. They're like, now it's, now it's I have an immutable, <laughs> immutable characteristic yes. that is a minority. That means that you, that I get to talk over you. Right. But yeah. hold on. I have another one too. I'm also female and, and trans. Yeah. And, and one leg. I have one leg. <laughs> <laughs> like everything. Yeah. Like get out of here. Like say something intelligent and I'll listen to you. Mm -hmm. I don't care how many legs you got. But uh, so yeah, Warren, I think the other big thing that nuked Warren's campaign is she tied numbers to an emotional appeal. Mm -hmm. and, and when you show people how much it costs to buy your vote, all of a sudden they're like, ooh, because they're... I think um, Thomas Sowell uh, said it best, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but he said, government is, our, or maybe he said welfare. I don't remember which one, but he says, it's all about taking money away from the population quietly and returning it to them flamboyantly. Mm -hmm. um, look, at all, look at all this money that I just took from you that I'm giving back. <laughs> right. And like, there's a, a Babylon B thing uh, going around right now from Andrew Yang. And it basically says something Andrew Yang's um, uh, campaign imploded, but when everyone found out that he was going to take a thousand dollars away from them to give them a thousand dollars. Now, <clears throat> obviously it's not a one-to-one -one correlation and, and he wanted to do it on a VATS tax, which is yeah, there was, terrible. there was, there was some, um some program that was done in Alaska that was like, it was a good study, but it was just like, yeah, but that's not something that would expand to the size of the United States. Yeah. See, uh, that's actually uh, a Taleb, Nassim Taleb. Uh, he has this, I don't remember exactly what the hierarchy goes, but it's like within my family, I'm communist, you know, because he's the central planner He's in charge of all the money. He gives it to his children, what he believes they need, so on and so forth. And then he's like, on the municipal level, I'm a socialist. On the state level, I'm a this, on a blah, blah, blah. On the this level, I'm Republican. And then once he gets to the federal level, he says he's a, um, oh God, what are the people who don't like any rules? Anarchist? No, no. Uh, I'm an idiot. My English has stopped working. Libertarian. Oh, <laughs> any rules? Well, that's like it's a they they want a smaller state, right? Well, I mean, there there's degrees of um, libertarians. You can have the extreme versions of the the anarcho capitalist, which want you know zero regulation of everything. And then you have the degrees that back out more towards the middle and towards cent the center where they, they agree to this and that, but prefer a smaller government. Mm -hmm. And I tend to, I tend to be libertarian without all the like obsession with weed. I couldn't give a crap less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, the, the, the things that we, the things that we end up, valuing and, and voting for can 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 shift between between who's trying to represent them and the because you know i've noticed a lot of people ever since uh 
uh, ever since Trump started running, there's a lot of people that have been like, you know, hey, you know, like, look, he's he's got the he's got the he's got the gay flag, and it's like, oh, well, okay, well, he he supports gays. It's like, well, there's a, and and there's still a lot of there's still a lot of Republicans that would be like, what, but we don't like the. The, the gays, <laughs> the, not well. No, the 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 gay marriage thing, and right. and it's it's at this point it's basically politically become a non-issue. Yeah, that it's funny because I, I have a friend who is uh, so far left. Mm-hmm. Like if I pushed him, he'd fall off a cliff. Oh, <laughs> he, he's like super left wing, and he used to like Obama. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now they consider him a Republican. <laughs> yeah, they don't like Obama at all now. It's insane. But, but I didn't care much for Obama and not for any, like, to me, for some reason, he had a, a, a poor impact on race relations. And they want to blame it on, on people being racial against him, but he also did things to egg it on like the Trayvon Martin thing where he's like, if it was my son, we'd have the same skin color. And it's, and it, and it created, and instead of him trying to remove the racial tones to it, it seemed like he, he increased it, which I didn't understand because I thought Obama was going to be the, the thing that removed the stigma from the U.S., the, the, the catalyst. I, I think it, he would've, it would have worked if he hadn't lent, if he hadn't been leaning so much on his race. If, if he would have just said, you know, I'm, I'm just a man, yeah. you know, something like that. But instead he came, he, he stood up and said, it's our turn. And, right. and so that's like, wait, who's, who's, who are you talking about? our turn it's just like we're all americans here <laughs> yeah i i it, it's weird because i have i've never in my life been even remotely racist um growing up i i dated black girls i lived in the ghetto of houston and did tattoos and i was like the white guy like i didn't care and mm-hmm. i didn't i didn't perceive racial things in any any light and so when it things became very racially heated i just i didn't understand it and so i i started analyzing and and i think you have something there with the fact that he played on that Mm -hmm. but there's also just like social contagions like ideas ideas spread really quickly And, and like i think the media they played on it. They played on that aspect of it and, and it caught kind of spread it. So, so you introduce an idea and then people have to take sides on an idea. Whereas if they could have just left the idea off the table and because it's an, it's not a useful idea, I don't think, but anyways, I don't want to go off on a whole (laughs) racial tangent because I'm so over it, honestly. Yeah. We, it's like, my gosh, what happened to, content of, of your character like, yeah i know and there's uh, there's all these people attacking martin luther king it's like dude i know it's like Wait. he's he's like the greatest <laughs> guy in our century what, what's going on here oh but he cheated on his wife so we're gonna throw him under the bus it's uh-huh. it's 
it's insane. Like I have this um, sort of like this metaphoric vision of um, left and right politics and and there's a couple of different ones, but the, the one specifically that I'm thinking about, which has to do with Martin Luther King being thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. It's like, imagine the right wing is like somebody who doesn't have good control over their dog and they're on a leash that's too long. And the left wing is the dog and it's like a big dog. And, and okay. the right is reluctantly being dragged around by this dog and, and the left is on this leash, but they're, they're like a, a dog that can't focus to save their life. So they're like, squirrel, 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 squirrel. And they're running in a big circle around the, the, the guy who has no control of their dog. Because if you, you think about it, you know, you went from Martin Luther King mm-hmm. to uh, he, he was catalytic in destroying, um, not, what is that called? Segregation, mm-hmm. right? And so they destroyed segregation. Here's the progress. They're progressing around. And all of a sudden, they've hit the far side. And they're like, squirrel. And they're running back the other way. And now you have um, the evergreen thing where you have the black students who want to segregate the school and kick all the white students off. And that's literally what brought Brett Weinstein into the, the limelight, so to speak. Yeah. And, and you have the, these, the segregationist safe spaces where it's for people of color only. And it's like in... in they've destroyed content of character and it's only about the color of the skin. And that's, that brings it, that brings it full circle in such a way that I, I hadn't realized in, in in that the, in that, in that case, if you looked at Weinstein, he would be like a secular Martin Luther King. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because he literally was trying to Martin Luther King them, but instead of, you know, they're chasing, they're hunting him down with freaking cudgels going door to door and they're going to drag him out and beat him for taking a stand on, on Martin Luther King's idea of content of character. It's insane. Mm -hmm. I think another, another good example of the, the, poorly managed dog running in a circle is um, you take feminism, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feminism started back in the 60s with Camille Paglia. Well, I wouldn't say that started in the 60s, but the modern day version of it. I believe that's first wave. I I don't know if women's suffrage... I think first wave was the the voting. Yeah, women's suffrage. Suffrage, yeah. Um, the second was like the bra burning, or uh, maybe there's like five waves at this point. Then. No, it's, no, it's it's, hey, third, it's going wave, in a circle. Third wave is like this academic stuff that's been happening, I think. Okay, so we'll call the suffragettes first wave, and then you got second wave. We'll, we'll call Camille Pagley the figurehead of that, and <clears throat> basically. What happened is back in the 60s, you have the sexual revolution, whatnot, and, and the females want to have the special rules that protected them removed. So there was curfew uh, so that they would be safe, and, and they couldn't wear a dress uh, that was below a certain length. Otherwise, they would be sexualized and so on and so forth, and so that they were protecting them. So they were, they were, mm-hmm. they were enforcing 
modesty and safety on, on the females at college. And Camilla Paglia, Paglia was <clears throat> instrumental in abolishing that. Like mm -hmm. she was the head of that whole movement. So they abolished that. And so now they're like, we're equal. If And, and Camille Paglia kind of had the, the idea that if, you know, you got raped, it was your fault for dressing like a slut in the bad side of town, so on and so forth. She you know what I mean? Right, right. Because cause she's, she wants the women to be in charge of themselves. And, and so she's saying we have to be smart enough not to do this thing. Wow. It, it, because I didn't, know, I didn't know she originated that idea. Uh, she actually has, there's a video where she's arguing with a feminist and she says that, and it's, it's probably like two or three years old at this point. And when she said that, I was just like, you know, here's, here's one of the original like crazy feminists. Well, crazy. I mean, well, she's crazy. eccentric. <laughs> eccentric. Yeah. yeah. So, so you have Camille Paglia who, who's about destroying the special rules that mm -hmm. set women aside. And so now she wants to be equal. And then in the 70s, I, I consider this second wave, but since we're going with the suffrage, I, we'll call it third. And in the 70s, um, you basically had um, Nixon, there was an issue with the gold and, and, and they couldn't, the gold wasn't matching up to the money. And in order to fix it, I forget what the, the program was called. Oh, changing the gold standard? Yeah, they took, they took the dollar off the gold standard. And oh. it instantly caused a severe inflation and, and, you know, so the, the economy was on the verge of collapse and, and one, the man couldn't produce enough money to provide for the family anymore because of the rate of inflation and the, the prices going up and everything. Mm -hmm. So the best thing to do is to sell the failure as a success and say, Oh, women, can now go back into the workforce. And so it became about women's empowerment instead of a failing economy, right? Oh. So, so that's, that's the next wave of feminists where they have, you know, now women are going back and this really comes to a four ahead in the eighties where you got women walking around with the power shoulder pads and uh, trying oh, to- Oh gosh, those things were ridiculous. Yes, they were ridiculous. And, but it was, it was women's empowerment because they wanted to, they wanted equal opportunity. So 80s really was the manifestation into equal opportunity between men and women. Well, now the dog has run so far around that we're getting into the, the fourth wave feminism where now they want special rules. And now you have Title IX where, where you know, women get special rules and the guy's automatically guilty. And um, mm. in Germany right now, they have a thing where you have to have so many mid-tier female supervisors and uh, it's actually causing problems over there because I have a friend who works in, uh, in government there and it's, it's causing issues because when you have to fill positions based on immutable characteristics, some of the meritocracy breaks down, so mm -hmm. to speak. And so you have people receiving positions that haven't necessarily earned them in certain ways and so it's like building a lot of resentment and issues like that yeah and and, and so that's we, we've gone all the way back around to what Camille Pagley was trying to escape in the 60s mm -hmm. she, she wanted the destruction of the rules so that we have equality of uh, opportunity and they've brought it all the way back around to reinstating yeah. special you're, rules to get getting them back a, into totalitarianism yes yes exactly yeah. 
Well, and, and then you've got the resistance to that, which is there's a lot of women, uh, it, like they call themselves trad wives, which is traditional, traditional, traditional yeah. wives. It's mm -hmm. like, and suddenly it's controversial to want to stay at home and uh -huh. look over your kids and not work. It's like, well, like, oh, well, if you can financially do that, great. I mean, what's the, what's the problem? I thought you wanted to be able to do anything you want. Yeah. You could do anything you want, but that, because yeah, that makes us jealous or whatever the hell. Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. <clears throat> I got this, um, this other theory about feminism, especially in, in the modern uh, version of it, mm. <clears throat> is um, it starts with the, the, the sexual revolution in the 60s. Because if you are a little bit reductive and peel away the layers of the sexual revolution, it was all about the destruction of modesty. Mm. You know, because they all want to walk around naked, they want to dress as skimpy as they can, um, so on and so forth. Well, women have their own hierarchy like men do. Men's hierarchy tends to be based on competence. So the most charismatic, strongest, capable guys tend to be at the top of the hierarchy. And women's hierarchies used to, to break down in a couple of different ways. But when, with the destruction of modesty, there was one thing left, attraction. How attractive the female was. That was their one hierarchy now because that's what men choose based off of. Um, when modesty was a thing, you could choose based off other things like, I don't know, whatever other, whatever other perks. I don't want to get railed for sounding sexist or anything, but <clears throat> when, when oh, trust me, we're, we're way past that. We've, we've questioned feminism. We're, yeah, we're I done. It's <laughs> <laughs> so when they stripped away modesty, all that's left is the attraction. So now trophy wives are a thing, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. And, and, women based off their hierarchy get to pick off the top of the men's hierarchy to where <coughs> now all that's left is like, cause if you look at feminists, like the really hardcore ones, they all have like that aposematic coloration of blue and red hair, which tells you they're bitter and they, they tend to be out of shape. They tend to be like angry and disgruntled and they're the female version of incels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so they're the bottom of the female hierarchy. They're the ones that can't get married off. This is what feminism tends to be. And it's like all the hierarchies are out in the open, whereas back when modesty existed, they tended to be a little bit like there was clothing on them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And now, now the hierarchies are naked. And, well, it's, and, and you said the one thing that they had left was, was, was like beauty. And, right. and they're even trying to get rid of that with the body positivity stuff. And exactly. So that remember, like there, there's the the intersection of the hierarchy versus the equity or mm -hmm. the equality, and and body positivity is moving the the equity aspect of it way too high, you know. So it's like, you know, I don't. It's not that I dislike you because you're fat. It's because you're unhealthy. You know. Yeah. I don't and, want you to die. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because like when a woman gets overweight, she'll miss her period, which means she's incapable of reproducing, mm. which like, this is all stuff that, that resides back in the reptilian brain. And this is a big part of why guys tend to not be attracted to overweight girls because it's like, well, I ultimately would like to reproduce. 
and yeah, the body positivity movement is, is a direct attack on the feminine hierarchy of beauty. Mm. In my opinion. Which is, which is their one thing that they had left. So yeah. it's just like, what, what's left? Like feminism is, is a absolutely destructive force. Absolutely. On mm. every level. And, <laughs> <clears throat> but they did they did try to bring back a certain amount of uh modesty because i remember um god what's that lady's name oh she's dead i can't remember her name right now well, there's there there's ones that have been trying to bring back modesty but they're doing it wrong yeah. like they're like that's what happened with a whole bunch of the gamergate stuff is you've got mm -hmm. these these reviewers and a lot of them female that are they're they're giving the system and giving out these strange opinions in which they're saying on one hand we want women to be able to do anything at all and not have to have all of these constraints on the other hand oh you're 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 putting too many skimpy women in these in these video games and they're and you're objectifying them it's just like well pick one <laughs> you know, yeah do you want them to be able to wear anything they want or or and that's the shifting put them in a burger? crazy the crazy <laughs> shifting goalpost but i mean that's a perfect example of the destruction of beauty because the video games tend to represent what uh young boys find attractive well i mean I don't think it ever stops. I don't think there's a 60 year old man is like, I must divert my eyes from that young woman in a skimpy <laughs> bikini unless his wife is there. But you know, beauty is beauty is beauty and there's a, a reason for beauty. And there's a reason it's recognized. Yeah. Like, like here's an example, a monarch butterfly will not mate with another monarch butterfly that is 18% out of spec. And this really? is Yes, and this is how monarch butterflies remain to look, remain looking like monarch butterflies. And if one is deviated in this direction, it'll look for one deviated in this direction. So theoretically, they return to the the proper look of a of a monarch butterfly. But too right? far a deviation, it, it won't happen. Yeah, and if it's if the deviation's too far, they'll be like, "You're an outsider. Get out. You're not reproducing because you'll destroy the the, the lineage." And mm. so. If you look at what represents beauty and sex appeal in humans, like for one, and it has to do with that spec. So like if you're, if you're looking at a woman and you think she's attractive and then she looks at you and you notice that one eye is lower than the other, you'll be less attracted to her because she's out of spec. There's something not quite right with her. And there's another thing like that what's generally considered sexy Mm -hmm. is when a woman has the the distance between her shoulder to a hip is correctly proportional from the hip to the ankle and uh the way her arms go so when everything is like in that perfect vitruvian spec mm -hmm. that's sexy assuming they're not they're not overweight because that's out of spec so and they can't be too skinny it's, it's like the it's like the chart of uh of da vinci's Da Vinci's man. Vitruvian man. Yeah, the yeah. Vitruvian man. It, it's the perfect proportionality of a human. And the closer you are to the perfect proportionality and the mo more symmetrical you are, and the more your, your bone structure fits into that classical representation, 
the more attractive you are. Mm-hmm. And, and anytime you want to portray horror and ugliness, like, you know, the Goonies, the movie, the Goonies. Oh yes. Um, and there's was, the guy with name? the, I can't remember his Lug? name. What, we'll call him Lug. I don't I, know I'm his name. Sure. Yeah. But one eye is too low. His head comes up into like a conical misshapen thing. And then one side of his jaw is low. And as a kid, I found it horrifying when mm-hmm. I first saw that guy because he was, he was so far outside of spec that, that it's, it was unreal to me. Mm-hmm. And horror in the, in the sense of disconnection from reality. You know what I mean? Like my reality stopped lining up at that moment. And then it's funny because like years later when I was like probably in my twenties, I saw that movie and I could tell it was just like Play-Doh on his face. That was the eye. It was so bad. And I'm like, I can't believe this terrified me as a child. That brings in an interesting aspect of this too, that, that there has also been a, um, I don't know if I would call it a Christian realignment, but there's been a realignment of, of what is truly beautiful in, in people talking about, Hey, you know, don't just look at the outside. You know, if, if they're, if they're a terrible person, that's not worth it. And, and with, with, let's call him Lug, with Lug, he, he was a good person. You know, he was just, he was just a tortured kid that just Mm -hmm. wanted to, you know, be a kid, but there's, so there's a, there's an inverted, there's an inverted beauty to this ugly creature, but, yeah. uh, but it's, if, if you, it's the same thing with what we were talking earlier with balance. Mm-hmm. If you've got, if you've got uh, too much, if you're, if you're too out of spec, but if you have if you have a lot of internal beauty, you mm-hmm. can still find, there's still something out there for you. Right. So Which, it's like, it's not, you're not completely marginal <laughs> in, in society. Whereas in the animal kingdom, just the looks would, would cast you out. Right. Because animals are naked. Yeah. And this goes back to the modesty thing. Modesty, I think in a way covers up flaws and helps you accept the content of character mm-hmm. and not so much the, the, the structure of the body, because like I specifically referenced sexiness over, over like collective beauty because sexiness is inducing your desire to have sex with them, mm-hmm. you know? And, and when you see like the supermodels with the, in their string bikinis and everything's proportional and all that stuff, it, it triggers the desire to reproduce with them, whether or not they, they are vapid, you know, when it comes to their personality. Mm. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that the destruction of modesty did is it, it probably in a way destroyed people's ability to see inner beauty on Mm. a lot of levels, which is sad. Yeah. Cause you know, like you said, lug was ultimately a good, a good person and you know now people get gold digger 
trophy wives who are, you know, they have like no personality, but they're like, Hey, look what I got. And and they don't get along. And like one guy's, you know, the guy's 70 and she's 23. And it, yeah. You know, it, yeah. It's very strange imbalances. Yeah. Because there, there is no proper attraction there. It's, it's base raw animalistic um, desire. Hmm. Like I have this, uh, <laughs> this theory that I play around with and uh, you know what sublimation is I think it I feel like I know the term but I, 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 I the definition is not in my head I can't remember who it originated with but the idea is that you have the raw human instinct like the animal instinct and sublimation mm -hmm. is taking the raw instinct and extracting out of it a virtue right so okay. oh sublime right okay. sublime okay so uh, so, okay. so for instance the one that i always use because i can't remember all the other ones but i really understand this one mm -hmm. is is the manifestation of a man's love is the sublimated desire to own because you know if if i was just a caveman i would love to drag my wife around by her hair but because <laughs> it's been sublimated into love instead of owning her, I cherish her. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Okay. And that, that's sublimation. And um, instead of, you know, owning the item, you cherish it and try to take care of it and try to You're grateful cultivate for it. it. Yeah. Grateful for it. And, mm -hmm. and you cultivate it to be the best it can be because, because it, you know, you've sublimated the owner, the ownership desire and turned it into love. Mm. Well, the, the idea that I had was, you know, it has to do with in modern society, there reaches a point where a, a culture turns into a society and that's where the, the evolutionary aspect of humanity reverses. Like, okay it starts off survival of the fittest, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when you're in the cultural stage and, and you're growing and you're a powerful group and you're moving towards achieving whatever the goal is. And in the case of the West, uh, specifically the US, the goal was, you know, you have Adam Smith's idea of, of reaching satiety and comfort. You have everything you need and, and you're safe, right? Yeah. Food, and food, clothing, shelter, and food, some food, clothing, shelter. Right, because because they went with uh, you know Adam Smith and fuck the guy who wrote Leviathan. I can't remember his name right now. But they reduced all of society down to its base level, and it's the desire, like the fear of death, basically. Hmm. They've reduced everything that, and, and I hate reductivism because it always creates problems because everything's so nuanced. But they reduced everything down to survival, and hmm. that's what the entire Western. Uh, U.S. specifically was predicated on, right? So you're, well, there's no doubt that we've reached satiety and, and comfort. Mm. I mean, you're sitting here in a very comfortable chair, you know, chatting and, and there is no threat. Like the, the, the most danger that you could be in is if you leaned back a little bit far and bumped your head when you fell over. Yeah. Like there's no threat of danger right now to anyone. You're not starving. Uh, there's no barbarians at the gate. So we've achieved it. And once you achieve it, the, you, you lose sight of your goals 
And I think the, the goals become infinitely stratified and everyone goes in a different way. And this is once you've reached the, the collapse stage where the things invert. And so now we've re achieved so much safety that like peanut allergies are a thing. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like peanut allergies would have never been a thing if it was survival of the fittest. But, and I know it's callous sounding, but we've reached the point where we could save everyone and, and, it's sort of dumbing down a lot of stuff. And I guess I'm technically making a Nietzschean argument, which is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's understandable uh, in, in, in what has happened. And then you get like, I've got, you know, issues with, you know, if, if I have too much bread, I'm, I'm, right. I'm done. Yeah, I don't eat bread either. Yeah, so the there's 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 weird dietary things that that have popped up in in society, right? And and, um, and strange. It, it's what's his name? Chris Rock literally made this joke. Uh oh. And um, he was talking about when they airdrop food into uh, starving places. I forget the example he used. Ethiopia, I think. Oh yeah. He says, if an airplane drops, flies over Ethiopia and drops a crate full of milk, you're not going to find a starving person run up and go, ah, oh, I'm lactose intolerant, you know, and refuse the milk because mm -hmm. lactose intolerance is the first world problem because we've, we've literally created issues. Like I, I too won't eat bread because it'll mess, up, mess me up. Mm -hmm. But however, you know, <clears throat> even a hundred years ago, I'd be like more bread, <laughs> more bread. Yeah. And that, that idea of where we've reached the point where we've satiated everything and we're, we're trying to stratify out like new things that we need to sate. This, this is when we enter into what I call ablamation and it's where, you know, sublimation is taking an instinct and then using culture to extract out a virtue. Mm -hmm. And to me, ablamation is from the culture that extracted the virtue, you re-extract out um, another, what would you call it? Like a vice. A condition. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. so, so, okay. And then you use culture to force that thing to be given to you. So let's, let's go back to incels, for instance. So if a man's love is the desire to own, which gets sublimated into... Cherishing. cherishing and love right mm -hmm. and then now we're at a point in society where you know things have have reversed and now people think instead of trying to earn it they think they're owed it and so they ablimate out of that this incel them where they're like they think that the women should give themselves to them and if they don't they're going to kill them you know mm. And, and like, I think really intense socialism, like for instance, you know, you had Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, you know, that's sort of the same idea instead of, you know, f uh, facilitating the desire to earn, mm -hmm. they've instead ablimated that out and say, I'm owed, I'm, this is owed to me by society for the mere fact that I exist. Yeah. And, and that's it falling out of whack. No, mm -hmm. like it's like the, I think the, the balance that we, that we were missing is at some point 
they took charity away from the church and gave it to the state. Yeah. Yeah. And that was terrible in my opinion, because the only way charity works is on, on a Dunbar level. It, it has to be, it has to be voluntary or the, or the, um, the virtue is gone from it. Right. Right. It, it's become a number on the, on the, um, federal level you're nothing but an empty number mm -hmm. and they have no connection to you like do you know what the dunbar number is no okay the dunbar number is a the number of humans that a person can track their name their face their personality their proclivities oh, their, does, doesn't that, that like other. cap out at like 20 200 200 oh no i'm thinking i'm thinking a different there's a different thing yeah so like a, a tribe would end up like being right around uh, a it Dunbar would be, number. It would end up being about fifty to two hundred people, and mm -hmm. any larger than that, there'd be a split. Yeah, there's a split because you don't, you can't track that many people, mm -hmm. and this is why I think charity works on the church level, because if Ralph shows up and you know that if you give Ralph twenty dollars, he's going to buy a forty and get trashed. Mm. or whatever a fifth of vodka I, I don't even know alcohol well enough to do this analogy no, your first analogy was on point <clears throat> and he, he's he'll go waste his money on that and get blasted that was a poor use of a charitable donation mm. but his his brother bob you know that if you give him twenty dollars he's going to turn that into a proper meal for his family mm. you know and that that has to do with the dunbar number um well my, I personally think most governments should be on a municipal level and, and go back to city states because when you get to the federal level, what's insane to me is like you take the House of Representatives, for instance, it's like 386 people. They can't even, they don't even have the ability to know each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's outside of the Dunbar numbers. How are they, they going to get along? They don't even know Half each other. Half of them probably never met. <laughs> right. And then... Yeah, never met. And then that, you know, goes down to the state level. Mm -hmm. And like, there's no way like they, they, they can't possibly know all their constituents like they can't. So they just know the ones who managed to work their way into their Dunbar number. And how do you work your way into a representative's Dunbar number? Giving them money. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. And, and outside of that, it's, it's, um, focus groups where they're trying to figure out what's going to get them reelected. Yeah. You've got, you've got your, you've got the Dunbar, you've got the focus group and then mm -hmm. you've got, and then you've got the influential within the Dunbar who are the yeah. loudest. And, and <coughs> yep. suddenly you're getting a mix between these loud 20 people mm -hmm. and the focus group. And you're wondering why this doesn't match all of these people that voted for you. Right. And, and with these two tools, these poorly calibrated tools, you want to extract wealth from these people and, and you think that you know who you need to give it to. Mm -hmm. And that's insane to me. Um, I think, it, I believe it's Milton Friedman. He has the, the shorthand uh, explanation of, um, what is it called? Economics. Mm -hmm. And it, it's the, his four quadrant, I guess four quadrant is redundant, but anyways, and there's two axes. There's um, 
the item you're buying and the money you're spending. And then the first quadrant is you're spending your money on you. So when you're spending your money on you, you're looking for the best deal and the best quality. Mm-hmm. So you, you're looking on both aspects. You want to spend the, you want to get the most bang for your buck. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And then over here in this quadrant is if you're spending somebody else's money on you, you don't care how much it costs. You just want <laughs> the best quality. Yeah. And then down here is the quadrant where this is the gift quadrant where you're mm-hmm. spending your money on somebody else. Yeah. You don't give a crap about quality. You're going to give them some bull crap for the white elephant. You don't care. It's like a $5 bottle of wine. Who cares? And then in the fourth quadrant is when you're spending somebody else's money on somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's government. Yeah. You don't care about quality and you don't care about value. Yeah. You're just, you're just blowing smoke up everybody's rear end. And, and that's why I think, Charity needs to exist on the church level, on the closest to the Dunbar. Um, I think it worked well with moose lodges and things of that nature. That's what they were back yeah. then. You go in, you pay in, everyone knows each other. And when somebody and falls the, on hard times. And the Shriners. I yeah. Think, is that, yeah. All the little, the little groups, all that stuff was within the Dunbar number charity. Mm-hmm. And, a lot of that stuff actually started in Rome by the Christians. And, and like, that's when, because before that there was the, the separation between the haves and the have nots, you know what I mean? Like this, a hard separation. Mm-hmm. And I, in, in Rome, uh, you know, about the time of Jesus and whatnot, that's, uh, that's when the, the Christians started saying, let's get together and take care of each other. And that's when they realized that, you know, a group of people could take care of each other in a way that, and this was, this was obviously after, you know, large cities began to materialize Mm -hmm. post tribal um, era. But anyways, that's why I'm not a big fan of nanny states. But yeah, there's (laughs) that kind of correlates with like having a really good life because there's, there's a, there's a book, it's uh, uh, Wabi Sabi. It's a, it's a kind of a, full, a Japanese philosophy of, of simple, simple beauty over time. But um, when, when they did studies on who lives the longest, a lot, there's a lot of people that live a really long time in this one town in Japan that they all work, they all know each other and they all get along. It's just like, man, what would it be like to live there? (laughs) You could actually (coughs) trace this back to any small village. Mm -hmm. Like um, people in like Sardinia live for a really long time and they're trying to figure out why. And they're like, is it because they drink wine and eat olives and eat cheese with maggots in it? It's like, no, it's probably because they have a small group that all know each other, that all work in tandem. Mm -hmm. And like it gets into that argument of whether or not the nuclear family is is good or bad, which I think like people have just been talking about this the last couple of days. 
and so it kind of gets you thinking it's like the nuclear family is you know the, the mother the father the kids and they take care of everything and then there's the idea of the old tribal family which is where you have a support network mm-hmm. and uh you have uncles and and the and the grandparents usually live in the house or something right or on the property mm-hmm. and things of that nature mm-hmm. and like the nuclear family is sort of the representation of the individualization you know the over individuation of this of society where it's like you know you, you break everything down to its smallest increment and and the nuclear family is one above the individual mm-hmm. and they're, they're completely separated and like i just i see a breakdown between communal and the individual level that used to exist and, you know, the Bobby Sabi book talking about, you know, they have a community and it leads to healthier, happier life. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in America, in the city, you go into a city and you see nothing but a bunch of individuals who almost won't interact with each other. And, like, and are sometimes on the verge of hitting each other from slights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the the craziest stories I ever heard, and I couldn't even fathom it, and I forget what city it was on the street of, but a man uh, had an altercation with his his girlfriend, and he beat her to death on the street while people are walking by, and nobody nobody stopped, and nobody interacted, and nobody nobody did anything, and I and I can't I can't believe that because I would have beat that man to death myself and in oh that that there's this but i live out in the country and so it's a tight-knit community and i know everyone and when i go to the school i know the name of every single adult within the school mm. who interacts with my children you know what i mean so there's a communal aspect to it because i live you know virtually in a small village and the concept of being in a city where everyone is a washed out faceless sheep it's weird to me the way yeah. people can can walk by tragedy and and do nothing about it because it would just interrupt their day but Man. i don't know not all cities were like not not everyone in a city is like that obviously but there's the there's that aspect of it mm-hmm. well we're coming up on 2 hours man <laughs> i know <laughs> Man, what, what, what did we cover uh with uh, story inspiration politics uh yeah beauty <laughs> beauty <laughs> man yeah it started off as a, a de- as a desire to discuss story inspiration and quickly went into philosophy <laughs> yeah and all over the place but yeah i probably should get get moving i have some things that i need to do around the the ranch now that it stopped raining it has been raining all morning mm. i've been stuck inside well i i i can cut it off here um uh, anything else you want to cover Real no quick? not no? that i could i mean possibly like if you give me something obviously i can talk oh, yeah. <laughs> but i think for the the sake of people who are actually going to sit through this long yammering mm-hmm. video we should probably cut it off yeah well it, it's been a, a great chat and i'm glad we finally got to get this together uh, yeah it was I, a lot of I, fun. Knew, 
I knew if we I knew if we talked it would be it would be a, a fun conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> I think next time we should aim a little I don't know. I don't know. I guess it depends on how the rambling unfolds and how it's taken <laughs> or if we should try to be more aimed or in focal because I am the least aimed person in the world. Yeah. Um yeah. So if maybe if we came with notes we could discuss something a little bit more directly. Mm. Yeah. Well, that'll be that'll be next time. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh let's stop our recording here. All right.